If you're new to the first degree, a word of warning. When we started the first degree, we were amateur podcasters, so apologies for any sound issues. They're really compelling stories, but the sound definitely gets better around episode 15. So with that being said, turn down your lights. Turn up that anxiety, because this could happen to you. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Hate her as much as you want for being a thief, a liar, a cheat, a slut, whatever you want to call her. But you can't vote guilty based on that. Welcome to the first degree where the worst case scenario hits too close to home. If this is your first time listening, I'm going to do a little intro of us. Um, my name is Jack Vanek. I am one of the hosts of the Lady Gang podcast, which is a girl talk, very raunchy, very raw and honest look into stumbling through womanhood, which is 100% the opposite of this podcast. Um, I also own a clothing line and am an entrepreneur and a true crime enthusiast. Or what was I going to say I was? Apprentice. Also true crime apprentice. Across from me is Alexis Linkletter. She's a true crime TV producer and journalist, and she's my best friend, and she's worked on every single TV show basically about murder, and I love her a lot. Hi. Hi, Jack. How are you? Thanks for that intro. And next to me is Billy Jensen. He's an investigative journalist who focuses on unsolved murders and missing people, and he's currently a supervising producer on Crime Watch Daily with Chris Hansen, who... We need to get him on the podcast one day. We could arrange that, definitely. Like, he has the best stories can, in the world. Can yeah. we discuss bringing back to Catch a Predator, or is that off the table? I know. Why Why is that not happening? It's the best show ever. Okay, so I think that we should do a little uh, intro of, like, why we started the podcast and <clears throat> why we chose First Degree as a name and kind of the premise of everything that we're doing. Alexis, you want to take it away a little bit? Yeah, we started this podcast as kind of a medium for people we know in our lives and people who reach out to us to share their experiences and, um, you know, kind of work through some of that with us. Right. And I think that the perspective of being like one degree away from a lot of these murders, we're telling it in a different kind of way where it's not like always, you know, the victim of a crime or a witness. It could be one of our friend's aunts live in the same apartment complex as Ted Bundy. So it's like, that's an awesome perspective to hear from something, except for Billy doesn't seem to have a story. (laughs) You know what? Yeah. I've got plenty of stories of me uh, either talking to murderers or uh, certainly talking to a lot of victims, but I don't have stories that I, that I can necessarily talk about uh, that are the kind of stories that you guys would be interested in. They're a little bit more <sighs> organized crime of the reality, which you don't normally see on uh, on true crime podcasts or true crime uh, uh, TV like you see on ID and Oxygen. But the idea that you know everybody has that hometown murder and everybody has that murder that you you know about. Especially when true crime got started to get big around serial and around making a murderer, you would be at a cocktail party and nobody goes to cocktail parties anymore, but you'd be at a party and people would be talking about, oh, yeah, you know what? This happened in my town. And everybody wanted to share. They wanted to share what had happened. And it wasn't necessarily the the crime that you would see. It wasn't we weren't talking about Black Dahlia or anything that was a big, giant crime that had tons of twists and turns. But it really did affect that person and it affected the community. Right. And how that what that's like to actually have known a murderer or known a victim. And that really is sort of a demarcation line in your life 
you know, what life was like before and what life was like after. Right. And it affects everything and affects everything that you do. So, you know, the idea behind that, nobody had been doing that. And when we first started talking, it was like, does the world need another true crime podcast? It doesn't. But if, it, need, if we're it just, needs another good true crime podcast. If you're just looking at it the way that a lot of people do it, which is just presenting the facts and then maybe having three people talk about it or maybe even bring in an expert. But that's not what we're doing. We're bringing in people that literally are one degree away from the murder. Well, right. another good thing about this concept is that, you know, you take cases like, you know, that of Richard Ramirez, you know, the Night Stalker. And everybody knows who... Everyone who's into true crime knows about him. Right. But, for example, um, I've made a contact who he went to high school with him. And I don't think anyone's ever talked about what he was like growing up or who, you know, maybe his family or whatnot, but how he was perceived in high school. Was he a ladies man? All these things. So even on these cases that are really high profile that you think you know everything about and you think you know everything you could about this person, I mean, we can reveal something that you've never even thought about right likely yeah. And, yeah. and it's just a matter of getting and and it's hard to find these people but we eventually we know that people are going to come out of the woodwork when and you very well the listener are going to have a story and you're going to write us and say hey can you tell my story yeah. and we will you know the 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 greatest one of the greatest true crime books other than in cold blood but remember he made up a lot of that stuff in there but in cold blood other than in cold blood was was stranger beside me with ann rule and that was what this really was about this is ann rule worked next to ted bundy and was able to give us a portrait of what this guy was like a guy that you don't normally think would become a serial killer yeah super intelligent super attractive could probably get any girl he wanted and he just had something inside him that drove him to to kill. Right. And Anne was able to, you know, she created a career out of that and became one of the most prolific true crime writers ever because of that. Now you're seeing some other stories come out like uh, My Friend Dahmer, and now, which, which was uh, a graphic novel, and now it's made into a movie, where you're getting those portraits of what these what these people were like. And we don't necessarily want to want to lionize these guys. We don't want to make them into anything more that they are, but we definitely want to understand them. Right. And I think that something that we're definitely going to end up doing on this podcast is highlighting both of these prolific killers, as well as so many little unknown that crimes that could have happened in your backyard that could be stranger than fiction. And I think the balance of those two will be awesome because you'll be learning new things about crimes that, you know, you think you know everything about, and then you will be hearing these new stories that nobody's ever told before. So on that note, this episode is about my perspective. For those of you that that don't know me, I grew up in Orange County. Um, I'd have to say a little tidbit about this story is that Alexis actually was working on a TV show that was going to cover this story without knowing that I had a connection to it. Right. And I brought it up. I think we were at lunch with, with my your parents. parents. Yeah. yeah. And um, brought it up and you guys kind of just went crazy and mentioned that you guys had a direct connection to these people. So it's, it's amazing. So go on. All right. So um, for those that don't know anything about me, um, I grew up in Orange County, California in a city called Mission Viejo. Uh, Mission Viejo has been like on the top 10 safest cities in the country for the past like 20 years. It's super, super safe. Um, it's pretty much like a cookie cutter county. Um, everybody is very rich. Everybody has mansions. It's very much like the real housewives of Orange County. I went to high school with all those, the women's kids. And, um, you know, there was never really any crime that was happening around me. The worst crime that I had ever heard of was that somebody's friend of a friend of a friend's house got broken into, but nothing was stolen. So that's pretty much like the way that I grew up. So, 
you know, the last thing I ever would imagine is that I was having sleepovers at a woman's house that would end up being implicated for one of Orange County's most notorious murders. But it all started, interestingly enough, with a personal ad. Um, It was Orange County Magazine, and the ad stated, Wealthy men only, single white female, 25, 5'5", 100 pounds, classy, well-educated woman, knows how to take care of her man. You can take care of me, and I'll take care of you. And it also noted uh, looking for an older man, 30 plus. So, and this ad included a photo of a very sexy young woman wearing sexy negligee as well. <laughs> negligee. Negligee. Um, and people actually met back in the day like that? Yeah. I mean, I think that was like the 90s Tinder <sighs> or 90s bump, whatever people, whatever you kids are using. But do you think people catfished each other on that? It was a little bit harder to catfish each other, but there was definitely a lot of people that that met people that they would eventually want to murder in, in these. In these in yeah, wait, these, have you uh, heard yeah. cases that like started off like this? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's oh, like yeah. the nineties Craigslist. Yeah, yeah. Before the Craigslist, this killer. Is, yeah, this is yeah. There's the Lonely Hearts Murders, which is very famous uh, uh, from back in the day, you know, right? Before really old to really date myself back in you know the um, before there was television, but uh, people would put out ads for Lonely Hearts and then they would get them, and then the, you know a lot of it was. Uh, a lot of women that were trying to get um, you know pensions and stuff from their their husbands and they would kill them and then collect the life insurance or whatever. So you saw this a lot, but this didn't start necessarily like this. It wasn't it wasn't somebody that was going to meet somebody or to kill them. To kill them. Right. This was somebody that was going to meet somebody for a sugar daddy. Right. And I don't know if the the, the name sugar daddy wasn't necessarily there. There was no sugar daddy magazines like there are sugar daddy. There's you know, sugar daddy com. apps now. Oh, yeah. I know. There's a billboard for one on Sunset. <laughs> sugar models oh, never pay for anything again. So, like, so big. Dark. But uh, that, that's what this woman was doing. This ad clearly is here I am. I'm hot. I need a guy to take care of me and give me, you know, probably a stipend. Right. Not, it's not just dinners. Allowance. Guys. It's an allowance. And I will take care of you. And you can read between the lines of what that means. Mm. I've got to say, like, good on her for being straightforward. Like, not playing games. At least you're not, yeah, at least you're not pretending that you want to, like, fall in love. So, anyways, the woman that wrote this ad was Nanette Johnson. She was 26 years old, beautiful, beautiful blonde model. Like, she was the whole entire package. Great body, amazing. So, she was born in Chicago, raised in Phoenix, and then was married when she was 17. Um, had two children and got divorced because her first husband found out that she was putting ads into the paper for wealthy men, I think. Yeah, and he also caught her leaving a note on someone's expensive car asking if they were interested in dating her. So she was going after that money even when she was married to her first husband. Right, and I think that her first husband did not have money, if I'm not mistaken, right? Right. Neither of them had money. So that became, I think, an issue for her that she wanted you know, the finer things and she was trying to find it. So... Um, Let's talk about how she was raised in Phoenix. (laughs) Billy, you live in Phoenix. There seem to be a lot of, like, murders that come out of there. Can you... I, I can, and, and it's, it's purely. It's, so hot? it's not because it's so hot. <laughs> it's not because there's nothing to do there. It's because that nobody really is from Phoenix. It very much is a place where people go uh, that aren't from there, and especially her family. Her family's from Chicago, and they went there. So you have a lot of people that are just first generation there, which means you don't have a large family. 
when you don't have a large family, there's also people that are running away from something potentially, and they end up in Phoenix. And why do people go to Phoenix <laughs> to die? <laughs> well, it was to become you know, murderers. It was, it was cheap, and uh, you know, people nobody lived in Phoenix until air conditioning, and then when you had air conditioning, uh, people started going to Phoenix, mm-hmm. and but. So you don't have a support system there and you don't have, you know, like a a very large family. So you have a lot of people that are kind of living alone. They don't have family. They don't have friends that coupled, you know, you mix that in with the entire stew that you have. What makes somebody a murderer? Mix that all together. And then dark porn, perhaps, (laughs) which is readily available in Phoenix, as well as most other major U.S. metropolitan markets. And you get a, you know, you get more killers than, you know, you see a lot of killers. And that's one of the reasons why you see a lot more killers. And it's probably not per capita, but you see a lot of killers in California. You definitely see a lot of killers in Seattle. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of killers per capita in Alaska because people are going west. And a lot of them are going west for these types of people. They're going to run away someplace. Some of them end up in Phoenix. Some of them end up in Arcata, California, or in San Diego. Some of them end up in Seattle, which is really the serial killer capital of America. And some of them end up in Alaska. Yeah. We'll have to get into that at some point. I know. So this ad is placed in 1991, and did it receive any responses? I'm sure it received a lot of responses. Many. She looked hot. Yeah. Yeah. And it got it got one response, right? <laughs> At least one. At least one response from a man named William McLaughlin. And uh, is it McLaughlin or McLaughlin? I think it's McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Yeah. I had a friend named um, Jamie McLaughlin, and that's what we called him. And I just uh, call him the Glock. <laughs> And she, <laughs> if that was my friend, uh, but uh, uh, William McLaughlin, uh, he had just gone through a messy divorce after a 25 year marriage, and he was also 25 years older than Nanette. So, so fun fact: when he got married, Nanette was a fetus, basically. Well, she, maybe a fetus or um, an embryo, or a, or a twinkle in someone's eye, really, <laughs> or like a, a vodka soda at a bar. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how that works. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's Isn't good. That babies get made. Okay. It is, but it's it's a longer process in between the vodka right. soda and the biology, but that's for another podcast. Just pick up line, probably. Yeah. But she was the same age as Bill's oldest daughter, which is uh, interesting. Mm. I'm sure. I'm sure she loved that. Yeah. Um, so they hit it off. They went on a first date, and within like two weeks, I think that she moved into his mansion with her two kids. With her two kids. And. She was living the high life. She was living this high life because McLaughlin had made a fortune in the pharmaceutical industry. He was worth at least $20 million when he met Nanette. And he had a really nice, expensive home in Newport Bay in a gated community. It's called Balboa Coves, and it's just, it's right on the beach. It's beautiful. These homes are now, I can't even imagine what they're worth, but in the 90s, yeah. same thing. Um, she was just in a really good position. And I, like I mentioned, she moved her two kids in there too. So Bill was smitten enough to allow all of this after just a couple weeks. So she certainly had a, a way with Bill. Bill was a self-made guy, too. Yeah. This is not a guy that was just, um, you know, had inherited his fortune. He was a, a regular guy who came up uh, with another fellow with separating plasma from blood. So he's helped a lot of people. He's actually saved lives, mm-hmm. this guy. Good guy. And he was in a gated community in one of the safest neighborhoods in the country. So right. you're thinking that uh, if anything bad's going to happen, it's going to be something that you invite into your into your home. Right. So, uh, you know, they had all the finer things. They had the cars, the clothes, uh, the vacation homes. He owned a plane. He owned a plane, must be too. Nice. Which must be real nice. Yeah. So, um, you know, but the one thing, you know, he was living this high life and he was out 
you know, with this woman who was 25 years his junior. And his kids, who were grown up at the time, weren't necessarily thrilled with Nanette. But he seemed happy, you know, and they were they were tolerating her because he probably had a little bit of a new lease on life. He probably was seeming younger and happier. But, you know, one of his daughters said, Dad, I think she's dating you for your money. And he said, yeah, that's one of the things that makes me attractive. He knew it. <laughs> See, everybody's so straight up in this situation. Mm-hmm. I'm great. into it. Yeah. <laughs> he knew it. He was just like, yeah, that's uh, that's my that's my deal. That's I mean, for deal. him, like, good on him. He has a hot, young girlfriend. Trophy, trophy girlfriend. He has enough money to spend on both of them. You know, it's what could go wrong. Why not? <laughs> and he proposed. He gave her a big diamond, which he was showing around town. Uh, they never set a date, but he did propose, and she did have that rock. So uh, after the proposal, which had no wedding date in sight, Nanette became the bookkeeper for his business, which that's the first, <laughs> for me, just reading the story and reading the facts of the story, that's the first red flag, is mm-hmm. that if you have somebody that is really motivated by money, don't you don't them. give her Access. The access to your business and the, the the checks of your business. So that's the first red flag that I saw. Right. But this was him. This was him that was doing it. You know. So uh, she got uh, perks. She got a brand new Mercedes Benz. She got a Nordstrom credit card and an expense account that did not really have a limit on it. <sighs> so nice. So. But really, Nanette did not do much work. She kind of kept track of Bill's finances, but didn't do that much work. So when you think about it, Nanette must have thought. She had struck gold here. Mm-hmm. Not only did she have a guy that was giving her a monthly stipend or an allowance, he's given her the keys to his business, the checkbook to his business, and she has a quote-unquote job. She's got all of these perks, and she's living the Orange County housewife dream. This is the OC housewife that everyone aspires to that doesn't want to work. <laughs> right. But by all accounts, I mean, given the fact that she wasn't working all that much, I, I've heard and read and, and everything I've you know done research that she seemed r- really focused on her two kids. And that right. was kind of the driving force behind seeking all of the security. And she was like big into momming these kids, like extracurricular activities, all that sort of stuff. So uh, Jack. Why don't you weigh in on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, and that's what I've seen over and over and over again when we're looking through, like when we're researching for this episode. It's like she was always like a doting mother to her kids. And that is my, had been my experience with her. So I went to high school with her, one of her older daughters. She was on my cheer team and she was at every cheer competition. She was at all of her kids' soccer games. She was always bringing her youngest daughter around. Like she was like always, she showed up. She was like on the PTA. She was always there so by you know a stranger's account or anybody from the outside like she was a great mom so it's like if she wanted to provide financially for her kids and give them a great life like you can't really hate on that and if that you know that's what she wanted to do that was great she was giving her kids an awesome life i have two comments on that one if you know jacqueline hearing that she's on the cheer team is high school is very jarring (laughs) jarring Uh, jarring if you just given her current (laughs) existence in in the world uh second of all so jack how close were you to this family like how many you know had you spent time at their home what was who was the net you met and you knew so she had when i had met her she had been remarried to i guess her it was probably i guess her last husband um which i think was maybe her fourth husband i'm not exactly Mm -hmm. sure um but i was yeah i was on the same cheer team as her daughter we'd have sleepovers at her house all the time i spent a lot of time with her and she was always just like a really lovely lady that you know she was just a orange county housewife 
Now, there's good sleepovers and bad sleepovers, <laughs> as we all know. So what was the let, – let's talk about the spread that you would put out for the sleepovers. How good were the snacks? How good were the uh, – and did she provide alcohol for the kids? That's the mother two questions. <laughs> what to remember, no alcohol. Um, definitely a snack spread, for sure. And she was one of those moms that would like make sure that there was always like pillows and blankets for every girl that stayed over. She was very caring to her daughter's friends. It wasn't just a mom that it's like, yeah, come over to my house and like let's party and like here's vodka, have a good time, kids. It, she was very she was a soccer mom, like, and she was just, yeah, her kids seemed like her number one priority, and she was, she was hot, not gonna lie, like, all of the boys loved her, MILF, like, a million percent, but she was just, like, a hot young mom. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense, it's like, she wasn't looking for this money and the security for herself, it's like, she moved her two kids in, she, she probably could have easily given custody to her ex-husband, you know, and been, quote-unquote, kind of on her own, but she, he did, I think her ex-husband did have some custody of her first kid. Shared. Yeah. Probably. There's something. I don't but, know. You know, it's not like she, you know, ditched them and right. decided to go live this high life on her own. It's like right. she was, she brought them up with her. It seems that Nanette had everything going for a while. Um, and I believe it was like three years of this relationship with Bill and things were just going really great until December 15th, 1994. And she was having one of those normal days where she was, you know, uh, carting her kids around. And I believe her son had a soccer game Mm -hmm. that she was attending. And um, her and her ex-husband were amicable. So he was at that game also that day. Right. And on this same day, December 15th, Bill had a business trip in Las Vegas that he'd flown to in his plane. And he'd returned. And there was a note from Nanette explaining where she was, which was at the game. On December 15th, 1994, Newport 911 dispatch received this disturbing call. And it's a little unintelligible, but you'll get the idea that something bad is going on on the other end of this line. So this call came from Bill McLaughlin's son. I think he was 24 years old, who had recently been in a terrible, terrible accident. He was riding a skateboard home from a party and got hit by a drunk driver, had been in and out of hospitals for like a year in a coma. So he had um, some speech impediments. And so it was really hard for the 911 dispatcher to understand what he was saying. At first, I think they thought that he was talking about his dog, like something happened to his dog. And finally, they understood that he was like, my dad is dying. And, And Kevin, while he had been in and out of the hospitals for a year, it wasn't just his father that was taking care of him by his side. Nanette was there as well. Yeah. You know, so they were very much a team with that. And um, so, again, that that plays right into Nanette being a really caring and loving person. Right. You know? Yeah, to a child that wasn't even hers. Yeah. Right. And Kevin had gone downstairs and discovered that his father was laying on the ground in a pool of blood, which is what prompted him to make that call. Um, and I'm sure that was just a horrific thing to... And he was he was upstairs in his bedroom, and he actually mm-hmm. heard the shots. So he heard the shots, ran down, ran downstairs, and then finds his father laying. And you can uh, take a look of the uh, pictures from the crime. He's laying down in the kitchen, uh, in between you know the, uh, the the island and uh, and the counter, and he is riddled with six gunshots. Hollow pop. Well, and um, just as a note, Kevin never saw the shooter. So by the time that he got down to the living room where his father was dead, he there was nobody there. I wonder if the shooter knew someone else was home. That's such a 
bold move was, with someone upstairs because he he was able-bodied, right? It was just a speech thing. I think so. It's yeah. bold. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when the cops eventually did arrive, they obviously saw this gruesome scene, multiple gunshots to the torso, and the autopsy did reveal six, six gunshots um, with a nine millimeter Beretta handgun. Uh, two of those shots were fired at really close range, uh, less than two feet away, and he was found in the kitchen, and he seemed to be in the middle of making a sandwich, which is super messed up. Like, Dang, I'm gonna eat the sandwich? God. It's like super not cool. Um, and he seemed to be pouring over some business papers on the kitchen table. It seemed that he was in the middle of kind of just going over some stuff. It was a shocking scene. This is a really affluent neighborhood. The police aren't used to this kind of crime here. And it was it was just going to open a huge investigation that would end up drawing on for quite a while. Uh, I guess when they first interviewed Kevin, they asked if his dad had any enemies. And he's like, yeah, he does. His old business partner. And so they had invented that. The they, technique of taking the cath- plasma. It was a catheter yeah. that uh, filtered plasma out of blood. Yeah. So they invented it together. And then there is a I think Bill bought his partner out of the the invention and they settled for i think nine million dollars but then the guy his old business partner thought that he was still owed some money so of course that's the first thing that his son thought about if he has any enemies because they've been going through this old lawsuit and like coincidentally enough he was going through those papers on his desk when he was killed so they looked into the business partner and where was the business partner santa barbara how <laughs> So he was like, for those who don't know the geography of L.A., that's like 100 miles away from L.A. So there's no way that he so could have made it. So if Orange County, it's like, you oh, know. from Orange County, yeah. Even more than Orange. You know, he just couldn't have been there. There's no way. Yeah. yeah. So 100 so- miles away with traffic, that means it's seven hours. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. So, yeah, he was out. So now, who could it be? So Nanette arrives home. The house is full of detectives. And they ask her, where were you? And she says she was at her son's soccer game in the city of Walnut. And then after the soccer game, she went Christmas shopping at South Coast Plaza. Have you been to South Coast Plaza? Hell yeah, I have. Was that where you hung out when uh, with your cheer friends? And- we cheer we friends. did hang out there sometimes. Okay. It is a mess of a mall. Do All you right. have to try out for cheer? Yeah, but my high school only had two grades. We were like the first grade, so I made varsity cheer my uh, freshman year. I didn't know you were so nimble, Jack. I'm not that nimble. It was just because there was no people at my school. Oh, that makes sense then. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> um, so she did have a receipt from South Coast Plaza. I think she went to Nordstrom. She had a receipt for right before 10 p.m. Well, McLaughlin gave her that Nordstrom card. I know. So that makes a ton of sense. Except for the receipt was also for like a knickknack. It was for some little little thing. That was like the one thing that she bought when she went shopping, which is interesting. She was at a soccer game, and then after that, she had gone to the mall uh, just before 10 p.m. and gone to Nordstrom's, and she had a receipt that said she had purchased something at Nordstrom's. At the time, uh, she appeared to be in shock. She told investigators that she was supposed to have come home earlier that night, but the Sun's soccer game ran late. She kept talking about how she was supposed to be home and how she could have been killed, too, which uh, a lot of people feel, you know, this could have happened to me. Of course. uh, Or maybe they could have done something. There's a lot of blaming of themselves whenever something like this happens. She told the police that she was worried for her life then and worried for the safety of her children. You know, she really seemed visibly upset and shaken. And she said, quote, oh, my God, it could have been me. Maybe I'm being targeted, too. So she felt that it wasn't over. Right. You know, they killed him. 
are they going to come after her next? Are they going to come after her children next? Uh, because if this was a, a killer who would come into our house, she was supposed to be there so very well that they could have been targeting her. Right. And at this time, it's like nobody had any clue who it could have been. Well, so. especially if you reevaluate the business partner thing, it's like $9 million is a ton of money in the 90s. And even no, though he was worth $20 million when they met. And he was worth $55 right, million. But for someone to be mad about $9 million. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. And even if the business partner's alibi, he could have hired someone to do it. Oh, yeah. So Easily. it's like, it makes sense that she'd be worried. You know, she has her two kids, which she's concerned with. And also, you know, Kevin was home. And I'm sure that's something scary. Or it's like he was just upstairs. If he had been down making a sandwich with his dad, he could have been killed, too. Right. So, of course, the police take a real hard look at what kind of evidence they can find at the scene. However, you know, there's no weapon that they recovered, no fingerprints, and no fiber evidence at all. So, okay, so wait, fiber evidence is what? Hairs, weird carpet fibers, pet hair, anything kind of small that could be dragged in on their clothes or, you know, just... So it's something of DNA. Right. No, not necessarily, no. It's just trace evidence. What trace evidence is is that anything that you... And there's two things that happen at a crime scene. is either you pick up something from the crime scene if you're the killer, mm-hmm. and you leave something at the crime scene. And right. What they say is that you can't not do that. It's always going to happen. You're going to leave right. something, even if it's just a gun and a bullet, and then you shot them. You know, you're leaving that bullet there, and then that's a clue. Or a gunshot you're, residue on your hands. Yeah, or you're taking something back. Right. Like you're taking, you know, uh, you might have, uh, you know, uh, dirt that's this particular type of dirt from that house or something like that. So when you're at any location, right as we're sitting, we're shedding things right now. We're definitely shedding uh, skin cells, which they didn't necessarily have at the time, and they really yeah. weren't doing that. But uh, and, and that could go into DNA, but there's also probably a lot of stuff here. They do a lot of podcasts here, so I'm sure it's going to mix with all these other podcasts. But uh, you're also potentially shedding uh, your dog hairs from your dog. Uh, the carpet fiber is what ca- what caught Wayne Williams in the um, in like the Atlanta child fi- killers. Carpet fiber from your from apartment? yours from your yeah, apartment. I was just wrap yeah, myself in there. saran wrap yeah. like well, a so mummy. I mean, whoever the killer was, obviously wore gloves, right. right? And then somehow did not leave a trace of anything there. Well, in the nineties, I don't think the technology was as uh, meti- you know advanced as it is now. Now it's really hard <laughs> to get away with anything. Um, Let's get into actually what else was left. So what was left was in the door, the lock of McLaughlin's front door, a key was used to get in. So there was no force entry and this key was broken off into the door. On the mat, underneath the door, right where you'd enter, is the key to the exterior of the complex, which would be like to the gates or to any of the gated community. They had to have like a pedestrian key. So although the the shooter was meticulous enough to not leave any trace evidence, as Billy put it, he did drop these keys, probably because he was frazzled and flustered by breaking the key in the door and kind of the um, stressful situation. So... These keys also, the especially to the one to the complex, were marked not to be duplicated. Um, so the one thing is this community entrance key had to come from someone who lived there. Additionally, uh, two 9mm casings were discovered in the kitchen next to McLaughlin's body as well. So that's, although it wasn't DNA evidence or evidence that could directly implicate someone this is a little sloppy well and it's it kind of means it's somebody that he knows because it's like how else are you going to duplicate the key and then also the only way to get into the apartment complex unless you like follow somebody in Mm -hmm. which you didn't is to 
have the key to the gated community. Yeah, right. but it's not necessarily somebody he knows, though, because it could have been somebody in, within the community. Right. Um, uh, how they got the key to his house, that's another thing. But, you know, people leave keys. Could have been a key underneath the mat. Could have yeah. been a key in a hide-a-key place or something like that. Two 9mm casings were discovered in the kitchen next to McLaughlin's body. So, And McLaughlin's body was shot six times. Does that mean the killer took the four other casings? Or they were... Yes. Okay. Yeah. So they just missed the So he probably two. was looking around for it and, you know, so putting myself into the cops' heads right now, they're thinking this probably isn't a professional hit. Yeah. Because... It's sloppy. Uh, it's, a, it's a little sloppy. The key and then the casings. But this was six hollow point bullets um, at very close range on this guy. Uh, you know, probably overkill for killing this man. Yeah. Who was shot while he was making a sandwich in his kitchen. God. Right. William's entire family is devastated. This is super jarring. Everyone in his life is devastated. Nanette is understandably devastated. And, you know, she wasn't going to stay in the house where this murder happened, of course. Of course. So she ended up staying in McLaughlin's second house, which like was a, a beach bungalow that I think that he bought when they were together as like a second property. So she's staying there. But like the sketchy thing was, is, you know, she was kind of seen hanging up Christmas ornaments and stuff with her kids, but there was no protection around her. It's not like she had a security guard or security of any sort. The doors were kind of just open. So it was kind of interesting because if she feared so much for her life, it didn't seem like she was that worried right immediately after the murder, especially when you have no idea who this murderer could be. Right. And the doors and windows were beachfront. So they're just open. So any drifter could wander in. Right. You know, so it's not like she's being really apprehensive with how she's living her life in the days that followed this murder. Right, especially with her children. So the police continue with their investigation, and they're checking out everyone's stories, and they decided to talk to Nanette's ex-husband, who attended the soccer game with her, because that's where Nanette said she was on the day of the murder. And they go to speak to him, and he does confirm that, yes, she was at that game during the so time of the confirms murder. confirms her alibi. But what he also says is something that kind of blows the lid off of their investigation, and that is that Nanette attended this game with a man named Eric Naposky. And he also said that this man, Eric, was not just accompanying her as a friend, that this was actually her boyfriend. Right. So she was carrying on this relationship outside of her relationship with William, which is never good. In not a good luck. Especially, she didn't share this with the police. No one in William's life seemed to know about it. So it really was a red flag for them um, that this guy, Eric Naposky, was dating Nanette at the time of the murder. Right. So, Billy, tell us about Eric. So Eric is a big guy, and he is... He's hot. I'm he's, not he's hot. It's a hot dude. Super hot. Yeah, uh, and so he's he, he has a great story. You know, he was a linebacker, was an outside linebacker. He went undrafted. He played in college at UConn. Uh, he was originally from Tuckahoe, New York. And he actually sneaks into the tryouts at the old Sullivan Stadium in New England to try out for the Patriots. Uh, this is what he says. And he actually runs the 40 and does he, what he says is it was the fastest 40 or the second fastest 40 of that year. He impresses the coaches with his speed. They do think he's a little undersized, but he makes the team. And he plays linebacker. He plays special teams. Uh, but he doesn't have that great of a career with the Patriots. He's cut the next year. But NFL was actually expanding into Europe. And NFL Europe uh, uh, was just starting. And he played four years for the Barcelona Dragons. And, you know, he has a great career. He still keeps himself in shape. In around 1993, he moves to Orange County. 
And as a former athlete, he works as a personal trainer. He starts a security business called Coastal Elite Security, which provided security guards for apartments. And then he gets a job at the Thunderbird Nightclub, which is only 131 yards away from McLaughlin's home. Coincidence. But the one thing that even though he started a security business, at the end of the day, this is a former pro athlete who didn't make that much money in the pros, who's working as essentially a bouncer at a nightclub. This is not the guy that Nanette would normally fall for in her scheme, but she likes this guy. And um, it starts to come out that she's having a relationship with this guy that nobody really knows about. She was at the soccer game, you know, a relationship so bold that she was actually goes to, you know, a, a family soccer game with him. And that was what she was saying, where she was with him that night. And I'm sure she thought she had a nice thing going where it's like Bill is taking care of her, you know, expenses. Financially, and she's got, yeah. yeah and um, he and I think he was even bringing her in on like business deals. Like they were kind of like partners and he was mentoring her kind of as this like financier type woman. And then she also had this really handsome kind of young, hot guy on the side. So right. she had like everything figured out, she thought. Um, but so, of course, when the police find out about this relationship, this changes the course of the investigation, and they start to focus on Nanette and Eric as the suspects. Yeah, the big thing is now is that the police are saying, wow, she has a boyfriend. Right. Mm-hmm. And let's look into her. What right. is she doing? What's what's her, if she has this boyfriend, and she's apparently has this fiancé who's 25 years older than her, and I'm sure when they spoke to some of the family and the family said, yeah, we don't necessarily you know, trust this woman very much, they started looking at the finances. What did they find? So they found that in the last, I think it started in January of 1994, and Bill was killed in December of 1994. Over the last like 11 months, she had been embezzling a lot of his money. And it kept escalating through this last year, which was the year that she started dating Eric, where over, I think it was within like 24 hours of Bill's death, she wrote herself three checks totaling $350,000, which is over the course of 24 hours. So basically, her embezzling is escalating, like exponentially. Right. And I feel like, you know, it's telling that as the days get closer to the murder, she's taking more and more and she's getting more and more bold. And it kind of, to me, even seems a little like either excited or anxious. Or preparing. Or, you know, it's something, though. It's definitely a a normal person would be like, this is really going to raise a red flag. This is a bad idea. This is going to make me look really bad. But she didn't see that. And she was just stealing and stealing and taking and continuing with that. Um, So, you know, as the police are looking more and more into Nanette and Eric, they're trying to see how they can connect them to the evidence that they do have. It is learned, you know, obviously that these keys, they were trying to figure out where they came from and they were able to trace the keys to a hardware store nearby. And the guy who owned the hardware store was able to ID Eric as the person who made this duplicate key, which is really bad. And also there was somebody that worked at the shop that ended up claiming that Eric asked the worker if they can make a silencer for a nine millimeter Beretta. Which is sketchy. And thank God they never made it. Thank God they didn't. Um, And it was also revealed through some witness testimony that the pair had been house hunting um, for 
million dollar homes in Orange County, which is fascinating given the fact that neither Nanette, of them had jobs. Neither of them had jobs, and it seemed that they were anticipating coming into money to be able to afford one of these homes, which is another really um, unfortunate choice that they made. So, Jack, also, isn't there something about the gun? So, a nine millimeter Beretta was used, but the police kept that to themselves, didn't they? Right. The, the only people that knew that the murder weapon was a nine millimeter Beretta were the police and then obviously the murderer. So, the interesting thing about Eric is when he was interrogated by the police, his stance on if he had owned a gun or what kind of guns he owned kept changing. So, at first, he said that he didn't own any guns, and then he said that he owned a gun, but it wasn't a nine millimeter. And the only people that knew that the murder weapon was a nine millimeter were the police and obviously the killer. So it was an interesting thing that he just offered up that information. Then he changed the story a little bit more saying that he had the nine millimeter, but he gave it to somebody that he worked with, but then that person sold it. So that's why he doesn't have it anymore. Um, so, and the police obviously never found the, the gun that was used as a murder weapon, nor did they ever find the nine millimeter that he had registered to his name. Obviously they find out that Nanette has a secret boyfriend on the side and they're going to want to talk to him. So the police bring him in for an interrogation and explain to him the situation. See, this is where I'm back. Okay. okay. This is what you need maybe to fill me in. Well, why? Why you're looking so hard at me? Okay? As far as relationships. I don't know if she's explained it since, but Mm-mm. they didn't have a platonic relationship. And you know this for a fact? For a fact. And where do you get your facts from? Family members? Nanette? Nanette? She told you this too? Yeah. Okay. In a tape interview, I could, I could get it. This was, no, this was no, no, no way, shape, or form, just a platonic mm-hmm. relationship. Okay. She was having, it was an arrangement. A nice little arrangement with, with Bill. She had a nice little arrangement with And Bill. what was the arrangement? What do you think the arrangement was? What did it state? Well, let me just, let me just, let me just. They had a sexual relationship. Be sure. Absolutely positive. Absolutely positive. Now, Nanette probably has never told you that. Well, she probably hasn't. Exactly. You know what? She hasn't ever. So? It concerns you a little bit, doesn't it? Well, it concerns me a little bit. You know? It concerns me a little bit. That's why I think you guys are wrong about the relationship thing. Well, I'm, we're not wrong. I'm, Eric, let me tell you something. I, I think Eric, you're wrong, but that might just be my stupidity or my denial. But I this think is not wrong. a subject that I would come in here and try to blow some story by and get you to say something, okay? Because as far as I'm concerned, this is, this is a deep topic that I'm not going to lie to you about. What he is trying to say is that he just learned that his girlfriend has a fiancé. And by the way, this is a little tidbit. When he was being interviewed, their relationship, his and Annette's relationship, was so serious that he was looking for rings to propose to her. She doesn't have two rings. I, I can't even one get a ring. text back. I want one. <laughs> okay. Anyways, so basically, Nanette was playing both of these men, which is well. Number one, Bill probably had no idea that Eric even existed. I wonder if he cared. I see. I don't know. Like, who knew if it was like kind of an arranged thing? We, I I don't know if that information was ever revealed. But Eric allegedly thought that her relationship with Bill was strictly professional, and that's it. And it they were not. They had nothing beyond that romantically. Yeah, he doesn't sound like the sharpest tool in the shed, Eric. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> obviously she was living in his house. It, you they know, apparently also never really spent nights together. 
So I don't know if she was using her kids being the reason why, but she was sleeping at Bill's house most of the time. So I don't know if you ever thought that was sketchy or not, but apparently not. Right. So, you know, this came as a, apparently came as a shock to Eric. She told us that she's engaged. She was engaged to Bill. That's what she told you. She has told us that in, in an interview when she knew that, that we were tape recording. Mm-hmm. She said that she was engaged. She was engaged to Bill. That's interesting. Having regular sex, which he break his friends about. Okay. Obviously, we can't ask him now, can we? No. So, all we can do is ask her. Mm-hmm. She, she confirms okay. they had a sexual relationship. Why she didn't tell you? If she didn't, then I want to believe you. Exactly. She Why no one else? Exactly. So what? Okay, so now that we all know the deal, how does this relate to the crime? How does it relate to the crime? Does it relate to the crime? It tell could. Me. It could. In what sense? Did you find out about it? Oh, you mean, did I find out about it? And then go, oh, no. There's no way in the world. There's no way in the world. There's a woman. That this is my statement. There's no way in the world I knew anything was going on between those two ever until after the murder when I started thinking, well, they're looking at me for a reason. You know, not just because I'm a big, tough boyfriend, because that doesn't give me motive to do anything wrong. Even if, like, I found out mysteriously, you know, some way that, that this was going on, my jealous guy to do something like that? Hell no. I know exactly what you're looking for, and I'm exactly going to tell you, you're wrong. You're dead wrong from your standpoint. So from this point, you can stay on my head for my whole entire life, and we will grow old together. You will die, and I will stay alive. But you can stand, and to, you will never, ever, ever find any reason to think that I had any motive to kill this guy. So where was Eric on the night of the murder? So we know that he was at Nanette's son's soccer game. And he said that it ended late. She drove him to his truck in Tustin. And she said she's going shopping. And he was heading to the Thunderbird nightclub. Remember, the Thunderbird nightclub is only a few hundred yards away from McLaughlin's house. But he says that while he's driving to the Thunderbird nightclub, he gets a page from his boss. He pulls into a Denny's at 852. And is able to, you know, talks to talks to his, his boss at Denny's. The murder happened a little bit after 9 p.m. So he's saying there's no way I could drive those 12 miles from that Denny's uh, to the house uh, where McLaughlin was. So, you know, that Denny's takes on like a whole new meaning now within this, you know, as as we start looking at and start looking at this case, the Denny's is almost like the, the Best Buy um, in, in Adnan's. <laughs> It Do you is. know that Denny's? Have you been to that Denny's before? I don't know which in? Denny's. Where, where well, it might have he been in, in Tustin, so it, I don't no. think I don't think you're, you're allowed. I don't up there. really go to yeah, Denny's exactly. either. Yeah, but so I mean, so but it, but it becomes a thing. Like, hey, no, this is where this is where he said he stopped off. He stopped off and used that Denny's payphone is the at a Denny's. New alibi. Yeah, Denny's is the or at least a payphone. So is wait, the new alibi. He, but it was twelve miles he had to drive in what ten minutes or something. Well, he made the call at eight fifty two and he used a credit card at the payphone. So there's uh, he said that there was evidence that he made the call at eight fifty two. The murder happened just a little bit after 9 p.m. There was no way what he was saying is that he could have driven those 12 miles in the course of, you know, what was it, 10 or 12 minutes? That, I mean, did they have credit card pay phones? I think it was at like 91. A, or they like used a, a, call, oh, a, calling oh, a calling card that you like dial in. Like, like 1 800 collect cards. Um, but I have, it that's a very small amount of time. Like, it really is. Yeah, but the killer did drop the key in like a frantic. That's true. It seemed plausible. Right. But 
that's a fast, a right. whole fast string of events. So happening. they, but they know that he does show up at the Thunderbird nightclub. Yes. Right. So, you know, so they've got him, they've got a potential motive. He's dating this woman. Um, they've got a potential motive with her as well because she's been embezzling money and they know that he has a weapon that is a nine millimeter. And they also know that he, uh, you know, very well could have been in the area and that he made a copy of that key. And they also know that he made a copy of that key. So it looks pretty open and shut. So what happens? So the thing about all of this evidence is it's all circumstantial. Like there is no hard evidence. We still don't have a murder weapon or anything. We have we have nothing. And I think that they said they had two DAs look over it and it just wasn't enough evidence to convict them. So Yeah, and you know, district attorneys make those decisions based on a million things. It could have been budgetary. People don't realize these trials can cost millions of dollars for the county and for whatever reason they had, they decided not to pursue this until they had more solid evidence, whether it be forensic or a confession. So what they did think they could nab her on, though, was the theft of William's money. Right. And so they did. They prosecuted her for embezzlement because $350,000 is a ton of money. And they were able to actually secure a conviction on her against that. And they sentenced her to a year in jail. And she pleaded guilty on it, too. She wasn't trying to hide that. Yes. And she agreed to repay his three children uh, the nearly 500 grand that she embezzled. And she also settled out of court her palimony suit for uh, an undisclosed sum. So she's sentenced to one year in jail. And she and Naposky kind of went their separate ways for six months after the slaying. You know, and going back to the point of everybody that's listening to this podcast now is probably thinking, how could they not arrest these guys? And it really does come down to, like Alexis was saying, it's the DA. And if the DA, and you have really two types of DA, you have DAs that are going to go balls to the wall and say, hey, we're going to do this thing, and I don't care. Uh, And then you have some DAs that are a lot more cautious, and that has a lot to do with budgets. It also has a lot to do with they know what the juries are like in their jurisdictions, in their counties. Mm -hmm. And if the jury, if they know that jury is going to want a bunch of evidence, remember, they got to get 12 and they got to get all 12. So they could say that 11 out of these 12 people that are going to be on this jury are going to say that this guy is guilty and possibly she's guilty as well. But they need all 12. And if they're not, if they don't think they're going to get all 12, they're not going to arrest them. So anybody that's ever saying, you know what, how can these cops be so stupid? How can these detectives be so stupid? If you get up to being a detective, you're probably a pretty smart guy. And I've had a lot of cops tell me as I've pressed them, whether it's on television or on, um, you know, on stories that I've written, they take me aside off the record and say, Bill, listen, we know who did it. You know who did it. We just can't build a case that is going to get 12 people to say he absolutely did it beyond a shadow of a doubt. District attorney is an elected position. So they also have political interests that they're protecting. Sometimes it is a bureaucracy and it is something where it just maybe a DA doesn't take an interest or feel particularly behind a case and maybe there was something that was bigger and more important in their opinion to right. prosecute. So there are a million reasons why a lot of these cases, even though they seem obvious, sometimes don't get uh, prosecuted or taken seriously initially. And the last thing a DA wants to do, especially a DA that probably has political aspirations, they don't want to lose a case. Right. So they don't want to go through something and then be a loser on it. So, you know, you have and you're seeing that actually a lot more and more. And that's one of the reasons there's a whole jumble of reasons why why 
the clearance rate for murders is at you know 62 percent now where it was at 90 percent back in in 1960 and one of them is because they are they really need and the the juries are asking for a lot more evidence they would you know if this happens in 1960 they're gonna they're gonna go for it right but you know even in 1991 1995 or whatever uh the juries were really starting to ask for more evidence and this particular da was like no we're not going to do it until we have something more concrete than what you've got so something more concrete did not come for a very long time Nanette served her time for the embezzlement and she got out and she moved on with her life and she moved to a different area in Orange County, which is where she came into Jack's life. Right. Jack, talk a little bit about that. I mean, she was remarried when you met her again. She had more children. This is where you met Nanette and she had already been involved in this horrific thing. Did you guys, did anyone know this about her when you were in high school? Nobody had any clue. I think that... Maybe a friend of a friend of a friend had mentioned it one time that her ex-husband got murdered and they never figured out who it was. But it was very, it wasn't like the secret of the town that nobody knew and everybody thought it was her. It was very much just, she was a normal Orange County housewife. At these sleepovers, you know, you're there with somebody that police think, you know, you don't know this or not. And this is before social media, really. This right. Is, this is the late 90s. So yeah. This is before Facebook. This couldn't get uh, away with yeah. right now. And, uh, you know, yeah, that, that story would be everywhere um, But if this was in the Facebook or Snapchat or whatever era. But it, it isn't. So you have no idea that you're sleeping at the house of a woman who has been seriously implicated in a crime of murder. Right. You have no idea. No clue. You definitely I, wouldn't have been allowed to sleep yeah, over it. My mom would... <laughs> Kill me. <laughs> like, you would not have been allowed no, over there. That would be the last if place people I'd knew be this. So that makes sense though, that no one knew because yeah, no, I mean again, it's like my my parents were super overprotective, so it's like that I'd be the first person not allowed at somebody's house that was involved in something that horrific. Mm-hmm. So yeah, nobody nobody knew. And was there ever anything out of place? Anything no, that you I mean, thought was weird about this woman or about the family or about the house or anything? No, I mean she was a beautiful woman, and she, the first day that I met her, I think it was like at cheer tryouts or something, and she showed up in like a crop top with her boobs all pushed up and a tight outfit on, but it's, she just was a really good looking woman, and she knew it, and I think she probably liked the attention, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm 30 wearing crop tops, so hopefully I'm wearing them until I'm like 40. Right. So there's nothing. I want that for you. Yeah, thank you. She had a lot of attention on her for that reason because she was just this really hot milf, basically. Um, but nothing like with her behavior that ever mm-hmm. set anybody off. Nothing telling. No. I think you mentioned also that she would. She was sort of like a. She was into religion. She was into the Bible too. Right. Well, see, I don't know if that came about after this whole situation or not, but um, she was, yeah, kind of like Bible quoting sort of. Interesting. So she turns into this Bible quoting soccer mom in this planned community, this Disney-like planned community of Ladera Ranch, which is about 30 minutes away from Newport Beach. Again, this is where all of the real housewives live. Right. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, when you knew her, Jack, did she have money in that marriage? Did her husband? Yeah. That husband that she married had a lot of money. So if Nanette was involved in William's murder, she had thought and she had long gotten away with this because this was years past. Well, and this is the crazy thing. If that was me, 
and I was guilty, mm-hmm. I'd bail. It's really crazy for somebody to stay in this literally the same city that you were almost arrested for murder in. And that happens sometimes where people end up hiding in plain sight. Well, that's how sure she was that she was in the clear. And I think what she probably didn't know, and I don't know what years you were spending time at their house, but the Orange County um, District Attorney's Office really decided to knock some of their cold cases out. And they brought on this really incredible cold case detective named Larry Montgomery. And he was referred to actually as the evidence whisperer. So he was really amazing at solving cold cases. And they brought him on in 2003. So he was slowly going through, you know, piles of files in the Orange County District Attorney's Office to knock out some cold cases for them. So in 2009 is actually when he came across the McLaughlin murder file. And, you know, he has his tactics in the way that he kind of approaches these cases. And he revisited everything. He recontacted old witnesses. He listened to every single minute of, you know, interrogation, the court footage, went through the transcripts from her embezzlement case, just went over everything again. And a witness caught his eye, one that had come forward actually anonymously four years after the slaying occurred. He ended up being able to identify this person and re-interview them. And what he told him ended up breaking the case open again for a second time years later. Right. So this witness uh, was this woman named Suzanne Kogar, I think is the way to pronounce her last name. And she lived in the apartment complex with Eric during the time of the murder. And they were friends. They'd kind of like confide in each other. And a little bit before the murder, Eric had come like super, super pissed off. And he was like venting to her about Bill McLaughlin. And basically what he was mad about was that Nanette had told him that Bill was forcing himself on her. And at this point, Eric thought that they didn't have any sort of like a sexual relationship or romantic relationship. So this is basically it's sexual harassment. He was so mad that he said he wanted to blow his plane up. Right. He wanted to kill him. All this kind of threatening language. Right. So Suzanne Kogar ended up calling this anonymous tip into the police, but it fell through the cracks because, number one, it was like four years later and just somebody must have missed it. Right. So Montgomery took this really seriously. And with the initial evidence, and I think the just climate of the district attorney's office had changed because I read a quote saying that um, Matt Murphy is the prosecutor who ended up prosecuting this case was saying that it's a myth that circumstantial evidence is bad evidence. To them, I mean, they still didn't have DNA, but now they had this new witness to kind of pull everything together for them. And at this time, for whatever reason, they thought they had enough to prosecute them and secure a conviction. Remember, they also had advances in ballistics forensics as well. Right. So they had narrowed down the, and a a lot of times that happens. You know, there's, there's two big things that happen with a cold case. One is people talk, which happened here, but it took a long time for it for it to get to the right person. But that's one of the best ways that you're going to get is somebody talking. And second thing is science. And there's there's things that they're going to be able to do with science 10 years from now that they have no idea about uh, right now. So that's why you collect as much stuff as possible. But as far as forensics goes, they were able to narrow down the gun that fired the bullets to a Beretta 9mm 92F, which is the same model of gun that Eric had registered on August 2nd, my birthday, by the way. Just, <laughs> Lucky you. Just months before Bill's murder. And uh, police also found um, Bill's license plate number written down in one of Eric's notebooks. So that's another thing that Montgomery had found, is that he had his license plate number written down in the notebook. Eric tried to explain this away, but, you know, that was a lot of evidence right there. uh, And they felt like they had enough. 
And also, just a little side note about this Suzanne Coger. Also, right after the murder, I guess he had come home like a few days later or something. And she says to him, she's like, I really hope you had nothing to do with this murder. And he looks at her and he goes, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. And walks away. What an idiot. Deny, so deny, you, deny. If deny. you not, why are you saying that? Uh, well, he trusted her for whatever reason. That's bizarro. Yeah, it is pretty bizarre. Okay, so on May 19th, 2009, which is 15 years after the murder... Nanette, who would become Nanette Packard and then became Nanette McNeil, is arrested at her Ladera Ranch home, and she's charged with murdering McLaughlin. And when police arrest her, Nanette asks for what murder? And then police reply, I don't know if you've been involved with other murders, but I'm here for the murder of William McLaughlin. Savage. Naposky is arrested on the same charges in Connecticut. And at this point, Naposky is a 44-year-old Connecticut personal trainer. He's a father of two, and he was actually engaged to a school teacher. The past catches up with you. I know. Truth comes out. I bet Nanette was shocked because she thought she had long gotten away with this. Yeah, and it was crazy because as a community, everybody was shocked. Orange County. Anybody that knew her thought that she was being framed. Nobody thought that this was something that she actually did, which is crazy. How did you find out about this? Did your mom call you? How did you know? My mom told me, and... Her friend had maybe sort of kind of known a little bit about it in the later years. So they had somewhat of an idea, but everybody else was just absolutely shocked. And it got a bunch of news coverage because it's the perfect storm of a media frenzied murder. Oh, it's made for TV. You've got this beautiful woman who's kind of like a femme fatale who puts a, a personal ad. Then you've got the hunky NFL player. And then he's the old... still hunky. 44. No, he's He still aged hot. well. He did age well. Yeah. yeah and, and then you've got the old sugar daddy. It is literally made for a lifetime movie. What did you do? And obviously this is 2009 now. Uh, we're talking about uh, social media is around. Did you hop on social media, start talking to all your friends from, <sighs> from that community and start... I don't know if I ever posted any... I mean, that's like maybe I had a live journal in 2009. <laughs> right. Like on MySpace. But I don't remember anything being crazy social media frenzy. Or but... even just messaging friends or texting friends Oh or yeah, anything. well, yeah, yeah, I was talking to all my friends on the cheer team because we were like, oh my God, we slept at that woman's house. That's nuts. So everybody was just shocked. And it really... I mean, nobody ever saw it coming from a woman like her. Like, yeah, you marry a lot of old rich men, but that doesn't mean you're a murderer, you mm-hmm. know? So The prosecution believed firmly though that they had done this they had conspired they had planned for months which is why her spending and stealing escalated and i think we forgot to mention this what she bought eric oh yeah so within 24 hours of their murder she bought him a nice new pair of crocodile boots and a motorcycle they're like 600 dollars boots yeah 600 crocodile cowboy boots fancy flashy post-murder jaunt (laughs) what the hell but they did believe that nanette was the mastermind she had given obviously naposky the key she's the one who secured access to all this money the house hunting they had been reportedly doing beforehand it just seemed very bad for both of them Yeah, they both go on trial separately. Let's take Naposky first. So Naposky's defense was that he said that he made that phone call, remember, at the Denny's. He got the the page from his boss. He made the phone call with a calling card, which is 12 miles away from the murder scene at 8.52. He said he couldn't have possibly made it to McLaughlin's house in all that Christmas traffic for 9.09 p.m., which is when McLaughlin's son made the 911 call. Now, he says he made the call, but he had long thrown away the phone bill, and the phone company didn't have any of the records. So that 
potentially could have been something that saved him if he's telling the truth. But he had no way because this is 15 years later. So that part of his alibi was thrown out. Completely shot. Investigators made the drive and they concluded that you could still make it in time, even if he was telling the truth about when he made that phone call. His defense attorney also made the drive and said that he couldn't have, depending on how you drive. Yeah, like if you like drive like an idiot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, through the bulk of Naposky's trial, he just pointed his finger at Nanette. Implicating Nanette is implicating yourself. And the prosecution in his trial was fine with that. And he was ultimately convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And he's still talking. He maintains his innocence, uh, continues to this day, has come up with theory after theory. He claims that he knows who did it now, uh, and but it wasn't him. Well, there is a point. I don't know if this was after the trial or when, but he did say that he did know the guy that did it because he had introduced the hitman to Nanette, apparently, so allegedly. It still implicates him. But I think within the community, people really wanted to see what was going to happen with her because they felt like she was the one that was pushing this. This was just some dumb palooka, good-looking guy that uh, that this girl had wrapped around her finger. Didn't you learn something interesting about the prison he spent time in? So he is now in Avenal State Prison, but he was in the same prison that Charles Manson has been in for until he died, which was what, Billy? What's Corcoran, it? I think. Yeah, Corcoran. Is that Central California? I think so, yeah. It's all Central California. I just love a fun fact. I think that's I do love a fun fact, especially Manson fun fact. Yeah. What if they were friends? Who knows? Who knows? I don't think Manson would be friends with anybody. Or no one. Or no one. Well, actually, one of the things that Manson would do, as as an aside here, is that you know he would sell his autographs a lot, and he had in every, the prison. Yeah, well, no, to outside outsiders before they kind of cracked down on it, and he had everybody like signing his name on stuff. Like everybody was like learning how to do his autograph. Like, oh the people, God, that's so. Funny. He did. He did have friends, but again, you know, Charles Manson was a master manipulator. Opening statements got underway today in the trial of a woman accused of orchestrating the murder of her millionaire boyfriend for money and using her lover to do it. But it was a fairly packed courtroom, including some of the victim's family members here to see this trial more than uh, 17 years after their loved one's murder. Now, Nanette Johnston is accused of living off her 50-year-old boyfriend, Bill McLaughlin. He's a Newport Beach millionaire. She's suspected of convincing her lover, Eric Naposky, a former NFL linebacker, to kill McLaughlin in his Newport Beach home back in December of 1994. Her defense attorney told jurors that Johnston had no reason to want McLaughlin dead. He claims that the two were engaged and McLaughlin loved her two children. The defense also said Johnston loved living the high life, which would end if McLaughlin died since Johnston had no money, no skills and no job experience. She was Dr. Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. She was trying to create the perfect man. She had these two worlds where she had the rich, old guy and the young, hot guy. And she couldn't merge those two together. And she was so she she came up with a plan. She came up with a plan. She said, you know what? This was her dream. She wanted to create the perfect man. And she thought, well, I've got this hot guy over here. I've got this guy's money. How do I merge the two together? And then we'll buy a house and live happily ever after. That was her plan. And unfortunately, what happened was is that Bill McLaughlin wound up dead because she was trying to create this dream for herself. So she got convicted. Same thing. First degree murder. Life in prison without parole. Right. This is some of the real audio from the trials. And you could see that both sides of this story 
were readily admitting that this woman was a liar, a cheater, a thief, a manipulator, a con woman. Um, but one side said, did she go all the way and commit murder? One side said, you know, you could be all of those things and not commit murder. The net Johnston, Packard McNeil, became a millionaire, at least on paper. She had a $1 million life insurance policy on Bill McLaughlin. She wants someone with money, and she wants to be taken care of. Nanette Packard would never, ever leave Bill McLaughlin for someone with no money. She was going to get caught for the thefts, and she was going to get caught for that affair. The only question is when. That's why Bill had to die. She always had a lover on the side. Does that mean she's a killer? No. She knows that she's a con artist, a ripoff queen. If you're motivated by money, you're not going to kill the golden goose to be with the pauper. Death equals money. She becomes a millionaire. She becomes the golden goose. Hate her as much as you want for being a thief, a liar, a cheat, a slut, whatever you want to call her. But you can't vote guilty based on that. These people are getting convicted and being sentenced to life in prison. But that doesn't ease the pain for Bill's family. And I'm sure this riddled them with misery the entire span. I mean, it took over 15 years to adjudicate and to come to some sort of closure. His daughters the entire time were concerned about Nanette. Right, exactly. So basically right after she was convicted, they all read their impact statements. And one of his daughters, she says, quote, your destructive trail of deceit is astounding. The fact that you, Nanette, destroyed so many lives, including my dad's, is vile. You had absolutely no right to take him from us for your own selfish reasons. Ugh. Nanette is convicted of first-degree murder with special circumstance of murder for financial gain. And Nanette's jury only deliberated for three hours. Yeah. What's an average jury deliberation time? For a murder trial? I don't know if there like was... Days, I mean, I'm sure right? there is a, yeah, or, not well, necessarily, depends. no, because a lot of murder trials are kind of a little bit more cut, cut and dry. Some open and shut ones were like an hour. Yeah. So she's sentenced to life without parole, and she's currently serving time at the Central California Women's Facility. And Eric, as we talked about, is in uh, Avenal now, Avenal State Prison. Now, they're in prison, and this is usually when an episode would end. <laughs> However, we have more someone who's one degree away from Nanette in prison. So this person saw Nanette in jail. Yeah. So Nanette ended up going to prison. And then, interestingly enough, a few years later, uh, a friend of mine that I knew from high school ended up going to jail and was in the same prison as Nanette and saw her. And it was like the most mind-blowing, weird sight ever because, again, she knew her from high school. Like, this was the mom of one of her friends. Um, And I just remember her telling me that she had this really, really, really long hair and it was gray for two feet and then there was a line and then it was brown. You could tell how long she's been in jail for. That's crazy. It was wild. Did she say anything else about being in jail that's interesting? She said a lot of things and I think we should have an episode just with her because what it's like to go to jail for 10 days. Oh my gosh, (laughs) we have to. Yeah, that's incredible. So, what do you guys think? They're both in jail. She was sitting me infuriating text. She's like, but what if he's innocent? Here's my so I obviously don't work within the crime world, and I'm also a sucker. So anytime somebody proclaims their innocence, I'm like, I think they're innocent. Like I think Adon's innocent. Anybody that says they're innocent, I watched that John Bonet documentary where they were it was obviously saying that Burke did it. He obviously did. Like, I'll listen to anything anybody tells me. That's very sweet, Jack. It's really cute. <laughs> innocent people proclaim innocence, and so do guilty people. <laughs> Everyone's innocent in jail. You're in jail for life. You have no possibility of getting out. Why just not admit it and just accept it yourself and just move on? Because they're narcissists. Yeah, and they've also been thinking it so long, and they've concocted stories for so long. Do you think that both of them them believe that they're innocent? 
No. What I think is amazing about Nanette, after this thing with William, she goes to jail for embezzlement. She marries another rich guy. He he doesn't even care. That's the thing. This woman had a way. It's interesting. So what have we learned? Yeah. You can't have it all. That's no. That's the. I think that's the. Uh, that's the moral of the story. You can't have it all. And the moral of the story also is that you know. Uh, when you're at somebody's sleepover, you know, I think everybody is going to sort of look at somebody in a, in a different way after this because you have no idea. I mean, you definitely know a lot more, but this is what it was like before social media. You had no idea who the people were around you, and this stuff could happen. You could be at a sleepover with somebody and have no idea that mm-hmm. they eventually would be charged for a murder that happened before you even knew them. Right. So that's it. That is my first degree story. And we want to hear from you. If you are one degree away from a murder or other stranger than fiction story, please write us. Uh, our email is hello at the first degree podcast.com or check out our website, the first degree podcast.com. There is a submissions form on there for you to fill out. We are very serious and very passionate about telling these stories that need to be told. We are reading through every single email and submission that we have. So yeah, don't hesitate to write us. And while you're at it, please follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. And do not forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I've been reading all their reviews, and they're amazing. Thank you guys so, so much. So we will see you next Wednesday. And remember to keep your friends close, but not that close.